I wanted to use this microphone today as a courtesy to all of you because I still have this lingering cough, and I can pull this away and cough, and it won't go over the speakers. Isn't that a nice thing? I was thinking of you, right? I say that like I deserve some sort of award, but I, uh, thank you. Two people clapping will do. <laughs> Last week we did this sort of fast forward thing where we, we went from John chapter 4 all the way to John 18 because we're getting into a time that we're walking towards the cross and we're walking towards ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. And today we're going to get into the trial of, of Jesus a little bit, but I just wanted to recap for a moment what uh, Pastor Scott Ramsey preached on last week. It was, it was an awesome sermon, and he essentially uh, preached on Peter being fickle or faithful, and what, which one was it, and where do you fall in? And he, we looked at sort of the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter. Jesus in the garden, he was being looked for, and he stood firm, and he said, here I am. And and. and you know, Scott even mentioned how they brought, uh, they brought torches with them, but it was a full moon. And it was sort of this reminder of the false light. But in a practical way, they were probably expecting Jesus to run and hide. And so they were going to, you know, have to search for him in the detailed way. But Jesus stood firm. And then we saw Peter's three denials shortly after that. This music stand is slowly shrinking on me. That's okay. Anyways. So the last week we were looking at that, and it was in John 18. And so this week we're going to be in John 18 and 19. So if you open your Bibles with me, <clears throat> the first place we're going to look is 18 verse 19. And we're going to get there in a second. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so this week we're going to look at Jesus on trial. And I, and I think there's a, a way to look at this that's a little bit differently than just the historical narrative of what actually happened. There's also a way to look at this and say... We put Jesus on trial in our lives all the time, don't we? Jesus' life is going rough. I mean, we, we just heard John could totally have Jesus on trial right now, but he doesn't. You know, we, we, when, when life is going difficult, sometimes we put Jesus on trial and say, what are you doing? Who are you? And, and we put ourselves in the judge's seat, don't we? Sometimes we do that when life is going rough. <clears throat> So I think, one, we put Jesus on trial whenever life is tough. But two, whenever Jesus does go on trial, and we're going to see this today, some amazing things begin to creep out of that and begin to really affect and challenge our lives. We're going to look at Pontius Pilate today. Interesting guy in history. Many people don't realize that he's actually part of Christian history going on. That, that at one point, Christian history suggests that he did accept Jesus as his Savior. And that he did leave Rome and that he did actually have some spiritual writings. But those are Gnostic texts today that we don't really look at. We're not really sure if he actually did those texts. But we do know that there's many sources in his life that say that he eventually became a Christian. Really interesting stuff here. So let's pick this up. John chapter 18. We're going to begin by looking at verses 19 and 24. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to, uh, to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. <clears throat> Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I've said. 
When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify to me what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Ananias sent him and bound him to the high priest. First, I want to bring this up. When Jesus gets questioned, we got to remember he comes straight from the garden. He gets right pulled out from the garden, straight into Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas is the high priest at the time. He would have had these water cisterns in his house. They're like these dungeons. And I've been down there. It's really incredible. Uh, the house is, I mean, everything is still there. At least the foundations and all that. They've built a new house on top of it. But it's all still there. And, and, and Jesus is down there in these dungeons, and, and they begin to question him. What is the first thing they ask Jesus about? His disciples. They don't ask him about his teaching. It's his disciples and his teaching. They ask him about his disciples first. You are first on the world's mind. The disciples of Jesus. And I think there's a few different ways to look at that. I think that when we put Jesus on trial, we sort of lump in all of his followers, right? When stuff isn't going great for us and we put Jesus on trial, sometimes we go, oh yeah, the church, yeah, they're terrible, right? Oh yeah, those people at church, you hear what they said? Oh yeah, when, when, yeah, you know, when life is going wrong, we sort of lump in all of Jesus' followers with him. And I think that's sort of what the high priest was beginning to do. He was beginning, he was putting Jesus on trial, but he was asking first about the followers of Jesus. I think there's another practical element of this teaching, too. That, and that if you're a disciple of Jesus, nobody's ever going to ask you about your teachings. No one's ever going to ask you about what you believe until they see it played out in your life, in your discipleship. Right? Because they ask about discipleship first and then the teachings. I think that's why Facebook arguments are so un- completely unproductive, right? Because we don't see the fruit in people's lives. And we're like, well, we don't really know if we could really believe that guy or that girl. We don't know that. That's why they're so unproductive, because we don't know the character of the person. But they ask about the disciples first. I think that's just fascinating. And then I love what, what Jesus says. He says, why question me? Go to my disciples. They know my words. Remember how we talked in the book of John about words are extremely important and that Jesus came, he is the word of life, and there's always this thing, word and witness, word and witness, all through the gospel of John. It's like John is just having fun saying, oh, this is the word of God, this is the witness of God. All through the gospel. And Jesus is saying, why don't you go ask some witnesses? Now, there's a practical element to this. A lot of people don't realize that Jesus is actually rebuking his captors. Because in a capital murder trial in Judaism, you couldn't just bring somebody alone as the lone witness. You needed two collaborating witnesses that would tell the same story. And so Jesus is sort of saying, hey, you know, in Judaism, we've got this sort of Fifth Amendment non-incrimination clause, right? I, I don't have to talk about myself. Why don't you go ask my people? They know what I've said. They know my words. Because as disciples... We're supposed to know the words of God, right? As the, this is why we push the community Bible experience. This is why we are pushing you to read the whole New Testament in, in, in the time of Lent. Because we want you to know the words of God. 
Because that's primarily what a disciple is. Somebody who could hear God and do what he says. But it also strikes me as kind of funny because in this moment of time, Peter is outside the gate denying that he ever knew Jesus. Would it have been a good thing if at the moment Caiaphas said, oh, Peter's right outside, let's see if he knows Jesus. No, his disciple was not holding up against the pressure. Of course, I've got a little bit of sympathy for Peter. He didn't really get that the resurrection was about to happen. I don't think he really got it. So you know that you're a disciple of Jesus when his words begin to permeate your life so much that it comes out in your actions. That's how you know you're a disciple of Jesus, if those words have an actual effect on your life. And like I said, since Peter was outside denying Jesus, it probably was a good thing that Caiaphas didn't go and get his witnesses because maybe they would have buckled under the pressure. I mean, Peter already buckled under the pressure of a little girl, right? We're going to skip ahead and go more into the trial because we already looked at the denying of, of Jesus by Peter last week. So flip with me, John 18, we're going to look at this passage, verse 28, and that's through the rest of chapter 18. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early in the morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out and asked them, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So we're going to pause there for a second because there's more to this trial But one of the cool things that we could say about the Bible, and one of the reasons why I just love scriptures like this, is is that we could verify this stuff. You know, it's not just that we have to take, for me it's good enough to take what the gospels say. That's good enough. But for a lot of people, that's not good enough. But we know that because of other writings, they've inserted this character, Pilate, and we know, based off, if you didn't have the Bible at all, we would know that Pilate was the fifth Roman governor, governor of Jerusalem, and he reigned from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. And we know that he's of the knower lability class, that he's a patron of Mark Antony. We know so much about him because of texts outside the Bible. 
we know that this event actually happened because of outside the Bible text. And that's not something that a whole lot of other religions can say about their sacred text, not to bash them or anything, but simply it's hard to say that about your sacred text. But in the Bible, it reveals elements of history that actually are true, that actually happened, that you could go stand there, that you could dig in the ground and find things that show up and reveal that this actually happened. So Pilate starts by asking the Jews, what are the charges that you bring against this guy? And how do the Jews reply? I love this. Well, if he were not a criminal, would we have not brought him to you? I mean, he's clearly a criminal because the fact that we're bringing him to you, right? And the fact of the matter is he looks at him over and over and over again, and he can't find anything on Jesus. Jesus seems innocent. Sometimes I wonder, like, when we put Jesus on trial in our lives, if Jesus stood there and said, what are the charges you're bringing against me? 95 to 99% of the time, it would probably be strictly emotional stuff that we haven't dealt with. Probably most of the time is stuff that we, we, we put Jesus on trial for that really we should be dealing with ourselves, right? So many times we put Jesus on trial, and if he were to stand there and say, what are the charges you bring against me? And we probably just answer, well, we wouldn't put you on trial if we weren't upset with you, right? But the Jews really had no answer. It's sort of like Jesus really just did nothing. So the first time, Pilate says, go judge him yourself. Go judge Jesus yourself. It's not my job. And and, um, we'll see Pilate over and over and over again try to release Jesus. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. But when, but what, um, but when the, but there's this word that comes up over and over and over again in this dialogue. And that's the word king. And we're going to deal with this a little bit now, a little bit at the end. But this word king comes up over and over and over again. Somehow we must think that, that the Jews must have told Pilate that this man's calling himself a king because Pilate's first question was, are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate did have some foreknowledge of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not one like this world. It's not a political kingdom like you might imagine. And if you've been with us on the book of Revelation, we spent days and days and days on this idea. It's not a political kingdom like you might imagine. But then he asks this question, and I think it's a really important question, and I think we ask it all the time. And the question is, what is truth? And then Pilate just walks away. And the great irony here is that he walks away from the greatest authority on the subject that there ever was. Because just a few chapters later, we see Jesus standing there in in John 14 saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through me. And And we see that the book of John is trying to tell us over and over and over again is that Jesus is truth embodied. He is the truth. So Pilate, one, asks the wrong question. He says, what is truth? But the right question is, who is truth? Because truth in John's gospel, truth in the world is contained in the creator God, the one who made it. There will never be a more important question than this, especially right now in the times that we live in. What is truth? 
In Pilate's situation, it's almost like, hey, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. This man is not guilty, but if I don't kill him, they might revolt. And if I do kill him, then I kill an innocent man. So what is truth in light of this situation? What is truth in light of the choice I have? Does truth even matter in the light of the choice I have? Because if I do something wrong, then Rome might kill me. If I allow this man to claim that he's a king, then it's a threat to the Roman emperor, so maybe I'll die. Pilate really had no choice here other than to crucify Jesus. Because if he went the other way, then he might have been dead. And he knew that very well. He knew that very well. So for him, what is truth is a very relevant question. But we tend to ask that question a lot of our society. And I think we have a society that asked that question a while ago, but doesn't ever ask that question anymore. We have a society that says, what is truth? Perception. What is truth? What people think about us. What is truth? It doesn't matter. It's relative. I think we live in that type of society. And as a church, we need to be the type of people that have a ridiculous commitment to truth. Because it's so countercultural to commit to truth these days. So many people don't understand the value of committing to truth. So I want to challenge you. Maybe you wake up in the morning and ask yourself a question. Uh, that, that could become very important. And, and maybe that question is, am I doing what's absolutely true? It is, it, do I believe in what is absolutely true? Am I keeping the true things the true things? Am I, am I honest in my speech, in my action? Do the, over, the overflow of my heart that comes out of my mouth, is, is that revealing the truth to people? Do I reveal truth in my everyday life? Because I think it kind of goes back to the whole ask, the disciple, ask about the disciples and then the teaching thing. Because when you have that truth coming out of your life, when you begin to speak the truth of Jesus day after day, and when you begin to live in truth where there's no falsehood in you, then people begin to see you're a disciple. And then they begin to say, what do you believe? Are you committed to truth? When people look at you, do they say, that's a person that is just committed to the truth, right or wrong? I was with a denominational leader a couple years back, and we were talking, and I was just shocked at how honest this person was. Just completely honest about how they felt with things. And, and, you know, denominational leadership is sort of like a political thing sometimes. There's people jockeying for position and all that. But there was just not a hint of that in this person. And they were saying, I'm just telling you what's true. They weren't talking bad about anybody. They were just shockingly honest. And it was utterly refreshing in the world that we live in of dishonesty and talking in code and not saying what they actually believe. Do you stay true to what is absolutely true? If, if Jesus were to, to, you know, put you on trial and ask you what is truth and look at you and say, are you being true? Are you being honest to the truth? Are you sticking to that? What would you do? I mean, how many people lie about ridiculous little things just to say that they, just to do it? It's absolutely insane. Anyways, we, we need to move on. 
there's this really interesting phrase where, where uh, Pilate is telling the Jews that he wants to release Jesus. And, and he basically says, um, the, the correct translation is, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. That is the, cur- like the really correct, straight out of uh, Greek phrase. And, and John, I, I love that you've got to sometimes pull it out of the Greek or else you'll miss it because in the English translation, sometimes we don't get it all the time. Um, basically, he says, I find no basis for charge in, in the NIV translation. But in the Greek, when you really look at the words, it says, I find no fault in him. And John meant that to be sort of this dual layer. One, the guy is not guilty. But two, what day are we dealing with? We're dealing with Passover. And what is Jesus called in the very beginning? Behold the Lamb. We're dealing with the Passover Lamb that has no fault. Pastor Scott last week talked about how what the Passover lamb ceremony would look like and what it would look like to find the right Passover lamb. In fact, it was right around Bethlehem area. There were about a, um, a quarter of a million lambs that would have been sacrificed for this offering. Can you imagine how much blood that must have been? Just, and, and in fact, we know that it happened over a two-day two period. I think that was the, the northern people from Galilee would go first and then the southern people would go second. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. My point is, they had to have a lamb without blemish. And here Pilate, this secular Roman guy, looks at Jesus and says, I find no fault in him. So not only is he not guilty, but he's the perfect Passover lamb. The perfect sacrifice. The only one who could actually take away the sins of the world. Some of you are here and you like to do a little bit of deeper study. And I, I'll just say it for extra credit points, which aren't real and don't matter. Um, for extra credit points, compare all John 18 and 19 to John chapter 10. You'll find some amazing parallels. But we don't have time to do that today. Look at verse 19, or chapter 19 with me. We're getting through a lot of scripture today. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They crowned him in a purple ro- they clothed him in a purple robe. They went up to him again and again saying, "Hail, king of the Jews," and they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, "Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for charge again, no fault, no basis for charge against him." When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and in the purple robe, Pilate said to them, "Here's the man." As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against this man. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? Remember that key question in the book of John. Where do you come from? Where are you going? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. 
But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. We're going to stop there for the day as far as reading the text goes, but there's so much to look at. First, I want to look at the way that Jesus was dressed. They dressed Jesus in a very mocking way. Right? The first one was they put a crown on his head. But, see, I, sometimes people do things that are prophetic, and, you know, the, these are Gentiles. They had no idea that they were being so prophetic. So first they put a crown on Jesus' head. Exodus, where's one of the first places we see the word crown in Scripture is Exodus 29.6. It says, you shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. The crown was for the high priest. The crown was also for a king. See, the, Jew, the, the Romans had no idea. They were dressing him as a king in mockery, but they were also accidentally dressing him as the high priest of Israel. They had no idea they were doing this. Who is our high priest? What does the book of Hebrews say? Jesus is our most perfect high priest, the only one that we need. <clears throat> then it's interesting, it says a crown of thorns. The very first word, place we find thorn in the scriptures is Genesis 3.18. It says, cursed is the ground. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. See, the curse on the ground was due to the man's sin. And now this curse is placed on his head and gone in the crucifixion and the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, when we get all the way to Revelation chapter 22, we find this great phrase that says, and there was no more curse because of sin. And then it says there was a robe. I'm just going to give you the scripture. We're not going to read it because there's too much to do there. Exodus 28.4 talks about the robe, the garment dressed for the high priest. And then it talks about the color purple, which the high priest worked in the tabernacle, and that's the color that adorns the tabernacle. And it's also the color of royalty that a king would wear. They weren't really realizing that they were dressing him two ways. So not only is he dressed as a king and being mocked as a king, but he's also dressed as the high priest with the curse of Adam on his head to be crucified. Isn't that amazing? The perfect Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the one that even Pilate said, I can find no fault in him, is standing there now before his people, bloody because he was flogged. Very bloody. So bloody, in fact, that he had to have the cross carried for him on the way to Golgotha. And we'll talk about that next week. And he's dressed as a king, and he's announced, Israel, are you sure you want me to crucify your king? And what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. This is a damning blasphemy in the Jewish mind. 
You have to understand, in 1 Samuel 8, it, what, what happened was, all the people came to Samuel. Samuel's the prophet of Israel. All the people came to Samuel and, and said, Samuel, this whole thing, we want to defend ourselves. We want an army. We want to be like other nations, even though God said, don't be like those other nations. My kingdom is not of this world. Don't be like them. And they said, Samuel, we want to be like this. Go to God and tell him we want a king. And he, and he was greatly distressed, and he went to God, and, and he said, God, they want a king. What do we do? And in 1 Samuel 8, 7, it says, And the Lord told him, Listen to all the people that are saying to you, It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And to put the final nail in the coffin, the Jewish leaders... So many, many, many people have heard the sermon somewhere along the line that says, If you were there, you would have been shouting, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I, I would refute that and say that the only people that were allowed there were the high religious leaders of Israel. And so probably you wouldn't be doing that. You might be the ones shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which we're going to look at in a couple weeks as well. It was a different crowd. So the religious leaders of Israel, these are actually people called the great shepherds of Israel, are the ones standing there. This is why you should compare it with John chapter 10 for extra credit points, by the way. The Good Shepherd passage. They're standing there shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And that is true because generations before, their people rejected God as king. So when you put Jesus on trial in your life, I think that he comes out in two different ways before you. One is as king. And the other is as high priest. Just as he was standing in front of the people, when we put Jesus on trial, he put him through this political trial. <coughs> he stood there, and to the Romans, he looked like a king, but to the Jews, he looked like a priest. And I think that there's two things that are revealed when we put Jesus on trial. One, that he is our high priest. And I, and I think the way we look at that is, we have to stop pretending that we can redeem our own situations. That we can fix all of life's problems that have to offer. and That we can offer some sort of mercy. Hebrews, um, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is our great high priest. Because Jesus is the high priest... What that means, see, the high priest was used as a conduit to God. You would go to the high priest, you would say, here's my dove, would you kill it so that I could have, be sinless for right now and so that I could be good for God? The high priest would broker that transaction. The high priest was the one who would help you have connection with God. In the book of Revelation, it, it, it talks about these two different roles that Jesus, Jesus plays and that Satan plays. The role that Satan plays is that he stands there and he's accusing the believers, the disciples of Jesus before the throne. The role that Jesus plays is that he's advocating for us before the throne. How powerful is that? He is our high priest. He, because of Jesus' death, we can now have a full relationship with the Father. Also, he is our king. When we put Jesus on trial, we quickly discover that he is the king and we are not. 
I've discovered I need to repent of the type of thinking that, I mean, how many times that I've said, Lord, thy will be done, but really in the back of my head, what I'm really thinking is, God, would you, my will be done? But I'm really saying thy will be done, but really my will be done? When we realize that he is our king, he is all sovereignty. He is in all control. And we need to allow him that and not say my will be done rather than your will be done. Maybe you're here today and you've never seen Jesus as your high priest because we're in a different, you know, a different tradition than one that has priests necessarily. But you've never seen Jesus as the high priest, the one who took on the curse of sin and who killed it. Maybe you're here today and you've never seen Jesus as king. Maybe you're one of the people standing there saying, I have no king but Caesar. And and you're sold out to some political kingdom. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I want to encourage you today. You know, maybe you've accepted Jesus as Savior, but you've never accepted him as high priest. Maybe you've accepted him as Savior, but you've never accepted him as king and the one who has full authority over your life. I want to challenge you today to accept him as one of those two or both and give yourself over to him because when Jesus is placed on trial, this is what comes out. There's so much more in these texts I wish I could show you, but because of time, we don't have it. I just want to encourage you that as we begin to wrap up today and invite the band to come back up, to be thinking of Jesus in one of these two ways, either as high priest or as king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we tend to put you on trial in our lives. Whether it's a difficult situation going on or whether it's just a whole bunch of doubt happening, we tend to put you on trial. So Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. God, that we would see you for who you are, that we would see your son Jesus as high priest and and, and mediator to a life with you, the one who makes it possible for us to have a relationship with the almighty, the king of creation. And Lord, so many of us need to repent because when we've said so many times in the past, thy will be done, we really meant my will be done. God, so many of us need to repent of that. So, Lord, we ask you to come in as king. And, Lord, we ask that your will would be done in our lives, even if it's hard and even if we don't like it at the time, because we know it's the best thing for us. So, God, we give ourselves over to you. Thank you for standing trial for our lives. Because we're so much like Peter. God, if we had to stand trial right now, I pray that we'd be more like you, standing firm. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.